Thank you, everybody, uh, for joining us this evening for our event on cultures of inequality in higher education, um, during which we're going to have the opportunity to think about and discuss the framing of equality and diversity issues in British higher education around questions of race and gender exclusion. Um, we have two speakers. Um, they're actually going to speak together, mm -hmm. not two separate papers, a joint presentation which is exciting. Um, so I'll introduce them both now, um, and then we'll hear from them, and then we should have plenty of time for a discussion and for questions and answers um, after, uh, after we've heard from Kate and from Slay. So Kate Dossett is a senior lecturer in American history and the director of postgraduate research at the University of Leeds, uh, in the history department at the University of Leeds. Um, her research and teaching focuses on race and gender in the 19th and 20th century US, uh, main areas of interest are women's and gender history, in particular the construction of feminist knowledge through feminist archives and women's libraries, and histories of the African diaspora, including black nationalism, the international black left, the Harlem Renaissance, and black feminism. Uh, she wrote a prize-winning book, Bridging Race Divides, Black Nationalism, Feminism, and Integration, 1896-1935, which was published by the University Press of Florida in 2008. And she's published a range of articles before and after that um, in places such as the Journal of American Studies, the African American Review, and the Journal of Women's History. And she's currently working on two projects, the history of black theatre and the making of feminist history and archives in Britain and the US. So that's Kate. Say Bergen is a lecturer in American history and the director of the MA programme in Race and Resistance in the History Department at Leeds. Um, her research interests lie in sections of gender, race, and social movements in the 20th century US. Um, she's published on the history of activism in the Journal of American Studies, again, Critical Race and Whiteness Studies, uh, and the Journal of International Women's Studies. Uh, and the latter article was actually uh, cited by several of my MA students uh, in essays on the topic of the anti-Vietnam War movement um, that I've been reading in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and she's currently working on a monograph based uh, on um, her dissertation, which will examine the myth of white rejection in the Black Power movement. Um, so I'll hand over to, to Kate and to Say for their, um, their paper, their talk, Stop Asking the Women to Workshop You, Cultures of Inequality in Higher Education. Thanks very much, Nick, um, for the very lovely introduction. And thank you to the Institute for the Study of Americas for inviting us um, to talk about cultures of inequalities in higher education today, um, and especially to Nick for organising uh, and making tonight's uh, event uh, so smooth and easy to uh, get to. Um, when we're um, not teaching, marking, or talking together, and I want to highlight that we probably won't be talking at exactly the same time, um, <laughs> when we're not busy teaching, researching, marking, um, engaging with external partners and producing international four-star uh, publications which will profoundly shape the world around us and you'll see that we're not suffering from the stereotype threat that was identified in the Royal Histo Historical Society's report last year which indicated that one of the things holding back marginalised groups in higher education was the ways in which they perceive themselves to, to, to be incompetent, to not be capable. Um, when we're not doing all of these amazing things, we've participated in a whole range of formal and in informal initiatives, both at our own institution, the University of Leeds, um, as well as in the professional associations to which we belong, such as the British Association of American Studies. And these initiatives are really looking at how we might challenge some of the pervasive inequalities uh, which shape all academic life in higher education. And some of this work has stemmed from our own research and teaching interests into the structures of inequality, into the ways in which knowledge is produced, 
to further particular kinds of power. Um, but also, um, I think, for both of us, a personal investment of, in working in a workplace which is less unequal. And part of the, these initiatives, both formal and informal, um, I think we've both been frustrated by and sometimes overburdened uh, by the ways in which we've been expected to do the work required to produce change. So there's a real dilemma, I think, for many people who work around inequalities in higher education. That On the one hand, uh, many people do feel personally invested in um, talking through these issues, in working around these issues. And what tends to happen is that you then become the person who gets to ask to work around and talk about these issues. So that sort of burden of, of, of doing that work, uh, particularly if you're a woman and particularly if uh, you're a member of a BME community. And I think it's this conflict which we've tried to encapsulate in our uh, title today, Stop Asking uh, the Women to Workshop You. So I think there's a difference which we want to explore with you today then between recognising that those who are marginalised by race, by gender, class, uh, sexual orientation may well be the people who are most knowledgeable about and have experience, expertise and useful solutions to challenge discrimination and structural barriers to equality. There's a difference between acknowledging that and recognising that and expecting those groups to do that work for you as an institution. And navigating these boundaries can be really tricky, both for individuals, I think for us, uh, for individuals committed to affecting change. And it can be also be tricky for institutions who are looking to do the right thing um, and looking to find willing volunteers who will do the right thing well. So in our talk today, we wanted to sort of frame it in this sense and to focus on three areas which we see as a recurring problem, um, areas that we think inhibit our ability to explore and negotiate these boundaries in order to have more meaningful discussions and to develop solutions which challenge both institutional and individual cultures of inequality in higher education. And these uh, problems are... These problems are narratives of progress. So by narratives of progress, then, we're talking about the ways in which the past is um, painted as a admittedly rather sort of dastardly place where sexual harassment and racial discrimination, homophobia and classism is overt, easily identifiable, and from the perspective of the enlightened times which we now occupy, so clearly, so evidently wrong. And central to this narrative is the idea that the past is past and that discrimination and inequality in the 21st century academic workplace is usually inadvertent, accidental, and often invisible. And this word invisibility, I think, is key to current discourses around inequalities. And because this uh, discrimination is inadvertent, accidental, and invisible, it's also very often lacking in agents, agents whose power ensures its maintenance and implementation. So in these narratives of progress, then, inequality is this rather unfortunate malingerer um, from a bygone age. Um, and uh, it's something that current managers and employees together are all clearly committed to overcoming, but which is actually about conversations about power, about the explicit naming of racism, for example, um, things that we find really difficult to do because the naming of racism is a practice that belongs in the past, like racism. So we're going to chart through some of these narratives of progress. The second problem we'd like to uh, discuss with you is the notion that um, we need an ever higher bar or an ever higher standard of proof needs to be met in order to prove that inequalities do actually exist. 
So this is the idea then that without regular surveys, without continuous reports, how on earth would we know that higher education remains an overwhelmingly white career path and one in which, who would have thought, white men turn out to earn more, manage more and achieve more status and recognition than females and BME staff in higher education. Um, and so is going to particularly talk about um, some of the most recent reports um, which some of you may be familiar with, the Royal Historical Society's report Gender, Equality and Historians, which was published uh, last spring in 2015. And about the same time, I think a month earlier or so, the Runnymede's um, February 2015 report uh, on race, inequality and diversity in the academy. Um, and so the third problem we'd like to just sort of briefly introduce, if we have time, is to talk through what's often termed um, the deficit model. Um, of uh, individuals or problematic behaviour on the part of individuals. So this is a problem in which individuals um, uh, are presumed to be the problem and therefore the idea is you develop initiatives to identify what is missing in a person rather than focus on an approach that recognises values and rewards diverse skills. An, an approach which challenges cultures and practices which prevent BME communities and women from being recruited in the first place and then progressing. So in talking through these three areas then, we'd like to share some of our experiences of initiatives um, at the University of Leeds within professional associations to which we belong and to try and to put them into conversation with some of these national dialogues which have been facilitated uh, through the publication of these recent reports and hopefully also draw on the knowledge, expertise and experiences of those of you who have come along today on a very hot day. So thank you very much for uh, coming along to uh, chat and talk about a really important issue today. Um, so I'm going to start by talking about how some of these narratives of progress get constructed. Um, and then Say is going to talk about the, the, the need to prove, the burden of proving. And I guess one of the things we wanted to sort of uh, put, put out at, uh, at the very beginning and to discuss with you is the kinds of languages that we use to talk about problems of inequality and equalities in higher education. Narratives um, of progress often uh, have to make decisions about whether they're going to frame their, their, their discussions around equality or inequality. And I think it's really striking that the, the recent gender report by the Royal Historical Society frames the problem as equality. Okay? So it's called Gender, Equality and Historians. Whereas the Runnymede Trust report around race in British higher education frames itself around inequality. So there's a lot um, at stake and a very particular position that's being adopted if we talk about equality as being the problem as opposed to inequality being the problem. And I think we see this sort of either-or, this problematic either-or in a whole range of other languages. So are we interested in inclusion or ex exclusion? Is, is inclusion a problem or is exclusion the problem that we're trying to deal with? Um, so one of the ways in which institutions have attempted to get around this is to use other uh, presumably less problematic words. So until fairly recently, many universities had equality and diversity units, um, equality and diversity officers. Uh, diversity is a word that you know, is quite ambiguous, can be quite woolly. Um, are all diversities equal? Um, is diversity a way of focusing on one or two particular issues, or does it always assume that you're interested in every kind of possible diversity? Who gets to decide what diversity is? 
Um, and I think in the, from the late 1990s onwards, there's been a move within higher education to use this language around diversity, around equality, positive language, you know, that's what we're working towards is equality, in ways that um, make talking about inequalities arguably a bit more difficult. Um, so uh, the use of uh, the term racism or sexism or white male privilege, it's, it's much more difficult to find those, those terms in equality reports in the 21st century than it was uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. And we can perhaps come back and talk about some of those changes over time. So I think the language of progress then is really central to the narrative of progress. Another way in which narratives of progress are framed uh, relies very much on the kind of starting point that we choose to adopt. And we'll see that this frames a lot of the reports that Say is going to talk about, but I think it frames the sort of anecdotal culture too. So that when uh, colleagues talk to each other about their experiences of a workplace or a work situation, um, conversations often begin something like this. Um, it was much worse when I started. You should have seen what this institution was like. There were only two women, and now there are, you know, eight. Um, look how far we've come. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that, you know, we have two people of colour in this department? Don't, do you not realise what it was like in the 1980s? Um, and I think this, this sort of final one, which is, is one I've encountered personally um, uh, very often, and it usually goes something like this, that, Yes, there's still work to do, things aren't perfect, but I, for one, am proud of how far we've come, how far we've improved. And I think these kinds of tropes are really common uh, at a time when we're uneasy with the language in which the naming of racism and white privilege, which might challenge a white male's qualifications, um, it, it, it becomes much easier to um, defend the status quo when you tie yourself as an individual to it. So I think the, the narrative of progress then is one that often ties change and progress over time to the progress of those who have achieved or advanced within it. So in other words, those who have experienced career progression at a time when BME uh, people and women have not feel, often feel implicated, often feel under attack in debates which don't use progress narratives as their starting point. So I think the starting point then for debates about equality in higher education is really important in terms of positioning who has power and whether that power is rightly, fairly um, held and deployed. So one of the problems with this kind of defensive, and I would argue celebratory start, starting point, is that it helps to embed and affirm white male privilege. And it does this in a number of ways. So it ignores... Um, and denies the inequalities that apparently still need to be reported and proved, um, as, as we're going to address later on. And I also think it, it, it speaks to the ways in which um, uh, people who challenge these narratives are seen as threatening, as attacking the department, the university, the broader workplace, and that that attack itself is unfair and unjust. So in these kinds of narratives then, you know, I for one am really proud at how much things have changed since I have been there. This is a narrative in which individuals in position of power become the victim of the narrative. I think most problematic of all is that these narratives foreclose discussion. They, they close down discussion about how change could and should be brought about um, and make it much more difficult to propose alternative and arguably more radical paths for change. 
So rather than taking as our starting point the, the progress narrative then, I think we need to start from thinking about where we should be rather than where we have been. And I say this in all good consciousness as a historian that's terribly interested in, in where we have been. I think this is a really difficult way to start a conversation about equality and inequality. And exactly why this is difficult was brought home to me fairly recently when an undergraduate history student asked me when the first black female professor had been appointed to the School of History at the University of Leeds in my institution. So the presumption, the starting point of her question, really took me aback. I was really surprised. Um, and part of my surprise, I think, was, was with my own surprise. I, surprised, I was so surprised that she had thought to ask me this question. Um, how could the student not know that there were no women of colour who were professors and had never been professors at the University of Leeds? Why had I assumed that she must take the same starting point as me? Hadn't she read the Running Leeds report on race and inequality in higher education published in February of 2015, which reported that 85 black professors across all dis existed across all disciplines, a figure which included just 17 black women? Why would she think one of those had somehow made it to the School of History at the University of Leeds? And she did, actually. She did assume that this must have happened, if not now, that it, it would be in the past. And she had read the Running Leeds report. So why had she asked me this question then, given that she um, knew the, that there were no women of colour in the department at a senior professorial level? I like to suggest that narratives of change over time need to begin with these more challenging questions, which come from the perspective not of those entrenched in the narrative of progress, but from those who are excluded from it. When was the first black female professor appointed needs to be asked, rather than looking at how many more women there are in 2016 than in 1966. Another part of the narrative of progress depends on separating out different categories of analysis and identity. Um, and although institutions differ widely in this, and it'd be interesting to hear your perspectives, I think it's fair to say that in the, the report culture that we inhabit at the moment, there is a tendency to have a report on race or on gender or on class and to separate out these, uh, these, um, these, these equality problems, as they're framed, into separate spheres. For example, the recent reports into gender inequalities in history and philosophy acknowledge that race is a problem, but both situate it as a problem for another time for a further report. I think that knowing that race is different to gender, to disability, to sexual orientation, to class, doesn't mean that we don't need to consider them together and think about what the real impact of the failure to do so is on how we construct narratives of progress in certain areas. So some of you may be familiar with the Athena Swan framework, which um, was set up to regulate efforts to grow the number of women studying stem cell subjects, so predominantly sciences, um, uh, at British universities. Um, and it rewarded institutions who increased their recruitment of female students at both undergraduate and postgraduate level. And one of the consequences of Athena Swan is that it's helped to construct a narrative in which the arts and the social sciences don't have a gender problem. And although this is laughable to people who work in the arts and social sciences, 
when you speak to people who have been involved in Athena SOM in, in stem cell subjects, they are really genu often genuinely astonished to, to discover that colleagues in arts and social sciences have gender problems. And they say, look at all those, those women doing history undergraduate or sociology. You know, you have, you, women are everywhere in the arts and the social sciences. Um, so we're often talking at cross-purposes, and we're often talking about or separating out different, different spheres of recruitment. So I think one of the possible benefits of the move from Athena Swan to the gender equality mark, uh, which is designed to address um, uh, problems of gender inequality across all disciplines, is the potential that we might think about how gender uh, impacts on women across all disciplines at all stages of their academic life but also to think about how uh, gender marginalisation is not, not just discipline specific but how disciplines are gendered in particular ways which means that the level of progress we're searching for, we're aiming for is constructed differently. In other words what are, what's the success for Athena Swan? Hooray! 40% of women are studying engineering might be a very different kind of uh, progress narrative in English or philosophy. I think another part of the, the progress of, of, of narrative is one in which the narration itself becomes the form of progress. So this is then not just about the dangers of the narratives of progress, but thinking about the way in which narrative itself becomes evidence of achievement. Um, and many people have written about this. Sarah Ahmed in the Runnymede Trust uh, report, for example, uh, explores the work of diversity workers in higher education. Um, and in particular, she interviewed, uh, did some long interviews with uh, diversity workers on university campuses. Um, and too often they reported that equality work was centred around working with documents. You end up doing the document rather than doing the doing, one interviewee uh, told her. Um, and I think very many people probably have experience of this in terms of having to evidence what they're doing around equality and diversity and the ways in which that is divorced from the work uh, of actually doing. But I think the equality and diversity document is a fundamental part of the progress narrative that we tell. So embedded in most university equality and diversity policies and documents is that necessity that you reflect on the past, you put forward a narrative of how things are going to change in the future, but it requires that, you, that, that that progress is built into it. Okay? So you don't usually start from where you want to be, you start from how things have been bad in the past and where you might be going in the future. And uh, this narration as, as progress is very much linked to, um, and this is kind of the final point I want to make about narratives of progress, which is who is responsible for doing equality and diversity. And I think there are many sort of historical narratives we could construct about this. So one might be a move from having um, individual equality and diversity officers, uh, particularly uh, committees that are set up with a responsibility to deal with everything to do with equality and diversity, to making it everybody's problem, right? So the mainstreaming of equality and diversity. So everyone's responsible from the, the vice chancellor through to individual employees. Uh, there's been a lot written about how this makes it everybody's problem and no one's problem. But I think within that, there are very particular narratives about the ways in which marginalised groups themselves um, are required to do that work and to, 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 to be the police, to be the surveillance team for inequalities. And I think it is clearly very tempting to ask those with experiences of discrimination to come up with solutions. 
Um, and why not, right? You know, people who've experienced um, inequalities are often very knowledgeable about them, have very many useful solutions. But there's a difference, as I said at the beginning, between recognising this um, and expecting those groups to do the work for you. Um, and I think the real problems um, in terms of mainstreaming equality and diversity, which means that this work once again returns uh, to, to, to the um, portfolio of those who've had ex direct experience of inequalities. So the problems of the progress narrative then should be ones about um, challenging this narrative, challenging what, <coughs> what it is we feel comfortable and uncomfortable about and how and where we talk about it. And I think one of the narratives that we have to challenge is the idea that more work is required to evidence the problems of inequality. So we're going to think now then about moving from a, na a narrative of progress to thinking about how and where the, the, the proof that uh, progress isn't there takes place and who does those kinds of work. Great. Um, so hello everybody. A bit of a switch up, right? Um, so I've been slightly obsessed with the notion recently that we have to consistently keep proving that inequalities exist. And I think part of my interest in this came on the back of last year, which sort of seemed sort of the year of the big report on inequalities in higher ed. Um, so just to highlight two that made particular splashes. So have people read either the Royal Historical Society report or the Runnymede report? A couple of people on the staff at least. So the Royal Historical Society report, as Kate mentioned, um, took as gender as its focus for inequalities. And its particular scope was thinking about how the academics were doing, essentially, right? So. Um, it surveyed a couple of thousand historians across UK higher education institutions, got pretty good response rates, um, really, and then broke down a lot of that quantitative da data from its um, surveys, had a little bit of qualitative data in there, and found a number of things that I'll talk about in a little bit, but was really concerned with the academics, sort of how they were getting on, promotion, hiring, um, who was doing what kinds of work, workloads, those sorts of questions. By contrast, um, the Runnymede report um, took race as its sort of starting point. Um, and rather than being based necessarily around survey sorts of data, it actually asked a number of practitioners, academics, and researchers outside of HEIs um, to come in and write small sort of surveys or reviews or sort of think pieces about where um, higher education in the UK sort of was on a number of things, including institutional cultures of racism, widening participation, sort of things like that. Um, and both of these made quite big splashes in a number of ways that I'll sort of talk about a little bit later. Um, but one of the things that kind of kept getting said about those things was that finally we have this proof and stuff, right? Finally, these things prove what some of us already knew about the existence of multiple kinds of, of inequalities. Um, but actually, what I was kind of interested in is I wanted to sort of take a minute, all of us today, but also take several days past this week, um, to sort of try to reflect on exactly how much proof has actually been amassed recently. Um, whether or not it was called for, and oftentimes it very much is called, we're, we're often very often called to prove that these inequalities exist in the first place. But I was really interested in trying to amass as much of this proof as possible. Um, and so what I did was sort of just look just at the arts and humanities and social sciences and just within this past six years 
And this is a tiny, tiny corner of the internet. I know you can't read it. That's kind of done on purpose, very cheeky. Um, but I'll, I'll be really happy to pass it on and, and you can share it as much as you want. So these are 18 reports just from the last six years, just in social sciences and humanities around inequalities. Um, so I'll just give you a smattering since I know I was really cheeky and you can't read them. So the Equality Challenge Unit, which many of us will be aware of, um, does equality in, in higher education reports, statistical reports about every two years, so 2010, 12, 14, we'll have another one again soon. It also, in 2011, had a report on the experience of black and minority ethnic staff in higher education in England. In 2011 also, the National Union of Students had its report, Race for Equality. The British Philosophical Association, together with the Society for Women in Philosophy in the UK, in 2011, 2011 was also a year of reports, by the by, um, had its report, Women in Philosophy in the UK. UCU in 2012 put out its report, the position of women and BME staff in professional professorial roles in UK HEIs. Um, the group Black British Academics in 2014 published its race equality survey. Um, the Women's Committee of the Economic History Society put out its report on statistics in its journal in March of 2014. The National Association for Music and Higher Education, about a year ago this month, put out Gender and Equality in Music and Higher Education, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And these reports speak to what so many of us knew beforehand, right? That there is a persistent gender pay gap of between 12 and 4%, as well as a pay gap between white and BME staff such that, for instance, Black professors generally make 7 to 10% less than their white counterparts. That in fact, the number of black staff of full professor positions, as Kate said, is 85 on the whole, um, 17 of whom are black women. That white folk and men, of course, dominate senior positions and are disproportionately represented in full-time permanent posts, which means also, of course, that white men dominate professorial positions that men are less likely than women to pick up on or in the very frustrating lingo of these reports perceive gender bias and discrimination, that universities tend to be inflexible in terms of implementing sensible and fair policies for staff who are parents or primary caregivers in some other way, that white students from middle class backgrounds still gain more, um, more than their proportionate share of places at the more research and elite sorry, research-intensive and elite universities, that promotion proves an especially difficult hurdle for women and, um, sorry, BME staff, that in fact, even when black minority ethnic students and those from less affluent backgrounds perform at the same level, at A levels, um, that they still see lower admission rates than their white counterparts that black British graduates are less likely than white graduates to find full-time employment, that women students and those from less affluent backgrounds are less likely to take up postgraduate study than male students, despite recent trends that show women students outperform male students in most humanities subjects, that academic culture, particularly within Russell Group and other elite institutions, from the architectures of universities to modes and standards of writing and communication, to pedagogical practices, to the curriculum, are undoubtedly shaped by whiteness, masculine ideals, and middle class standards. So what Diane Ray wrote with regard to Oxbridge and the money, money sorry, Runnymede report, but which we could apply equally to other elite HEIs in the UK, 
that there is, quote, strong, that there are strong processes of positive discrimination at work for white males um, is certainly true. So these reports, and I think it's worth noting that I have literally had to ignore hundreds of reports in order to just focus in right on the particular subjects and in the particular last six years. And we can think, I think it's really important to think, in fact, about the ways in which the report has a certain amount of currency that other kinds of proof sort of don't necessarily have. But lest we think that that other proof simply hasn't been out there and thus these reports had to be written, I would contest and say that this proof has always been existent um, through student campaigns such as the um, Why Is My Curriculum White? Um, from blogs like the Everyday Sexism Project, um, from the kinds of events, conferences that we see all the time that then get produced into special issues, articles, books, etc. This proof is out there. Um, some might call it qualitative or anecdotal and so not as robust and I think we could all maybe think about in the discussion about the ways in which certain kinds of proof get privileged over other kinds of proof, right? That all of this proof has been with us for quite some time, right? So in part what I want to do is think about why there are still calls for proof and what those calls for proof tend to do. So a key reason from my perspective that such proof is repeatedly demanded in institutions like academia is, as Sarah Ahmed has recently shown so well, because, quote, academics tend to see themselves as being critical and thus not having a problem with racism, sexism, homophobia, or other inequalities. One of my white female colleagues put this another way to me last week. Um, when she said she had just from, come from an implicit bias workshop in which only eight people showed, all of whom were women, and none of us, she said, really needed to be there. So this sense of being beyond, above, or past the point of bias, prejudice, or discrimination is of course related to the problem of the progress narrative, or maybe what we should just call today the progress myth. I've lost track of the number of conversations I've had with colleagues whose insistence upon academia's meritocracy I met by detailing various personal anecdotes, reports, or statistics. Even recently, at a symposium on gender inequalities and academic jobs, a forum in which I wrongly anticipated some mutual understanding of the ways in which gender and race continue to shape our institutional lives, even there, I was met with incredulous stares and disbelief when I stated that, in fact, more overt kinds of sexism were, in fact, still happening in the university. More than one person approached me afterwards to first, and rather weirdly, apologize um, that I'd been through those kinds of experiences, and second, to say that they wanted to know more about them. So from where I was sitting, having just seen their disbelieving faces, these remarks felt like further calls to prove it. And in this way, we might also want to think about how the uptake of the implicit bias model now is really making it much harder for us to identify other kinds of discrimination, right? The fact that we're calling everything implicit bias at the moment and naming that as the problem at the moment actually makes it really difficult to sort of call attention to other kinds of discriminatory practices and behaviors. So these interpersonal proving moments are not disconnected from the more public and robust calls to prove that inequalities persist, right? 
Obstinate is the notion that universities are inherently liberal places. And so each time that proof is provided, it is met with such shock, dismay, or disbelief, as from my colleagues. Perhaps more so than any other recent example was the reaction to the news that UK institutions employed 85 black professors and 17 black professor women. Vice chancellors, HR managers, heads of school, the wider public, countless individuals expressed great shock and concern on learning of such abysmal figures. But why? Had they not read the countless blogs, articles, special issues, news reports, or op-eds that detailed the bleak picture of equalities and opportunities for black women and men in postgraduate study, early career research, and promotions? Had they not attended any of the panels or conferences, listened to any of the student-led campaigns, heard the speeches and keynotes that highlighted the difficulties for women and BME students to find aspects of the curriculum in which they could see themselves, exciting learning opportunities that might propel them into further study and perhaps an academic profession. This cannot be an innocent shock, a shock we must see as coming from a place of not knowing better. If there is an ignorance taking place, and I'm not so sure that there actually is, it is a willfully constructed one. It is at least in part based in fallacious notions that universities have critiqued themselves out of inequalities and partly based in the insistence on a narrative of progress. Indeed, narratives of progress and notions of the liberal university may be the cornerstone of institutional inequalities in higher education. And it's in this light that we must also see the never-ending calls to prove as yet another tactic to actually ignore the problem. For there has been proof enough for long enough, yet very little will. So I think at the moment, part of what we want to do is... Ooh, look, that's there, isn't it? See these things again. Is just sort of raise a couple of issues around how some of the solutions get couched, right? So... Um, and we're just going to kind of, I think, raise these really quickly before showing a very fun and wonderful short film. Um, but so I think all of these things are connected, right, um, in the ways that I just talked about. But then some of the very unsatisfactory solutions, but the most sort of powerful solutions in terms of who gets to say them and how much power those individuals have, um, come in the terms of what gets called very often the deficit model for individuals. So this is a model um, in which an individual, individual's behaviors become the problem to their own progress, right? Um, it's, a, it's a victim blaming, right, of sorts, kind of. Um, so Kate talked at the very beginning briefly about stereotype threat, another way in which um, this sort of individual facing the problem gets problematized in the process are the many, many, many programs that get set up in order to help the individuals acclimate to the institutional culture in which they're going to find themselves. We could think about mentoring programs and the ways in which mentoring gets talked about, again, as a sort of, um, I see some giggles, I'm hoping that means we have conversation about it later. <laughs> the ways that mentoring gets sort of held up as the thing to do, particularly for women, um, but also for BME staff within these institutions. Um, as sort of, I guess, the golden ticket, what's going to really like save, save these individuals from themselves are really strong role models and, and mentors to tell them how to negotiate the culture. So it's not about actually transforming the culture, changing the values of the institution itself, right? It's about getting that person to adapt to those values and that culture in the first place. Um, and so just a final 
sort of way that this happens as well um, is, is, is problematizing feminized behavior, right? And I, I bring this one up as it's happened to me quite a bit over the past year or so in particular, right? So this notion that um, if I'm behind in my career or if I don't have enough time or if I'm finding the institution or my department problematic or frustrating, it's because I haven't properly acclimated myself to it or I give too much time to my students, which is something I probably hear nearly every day, right? Um, or as a colleague actually recently said, you know, she more or less pleaded a room of academics um, for the women in the room to not wear floral dresses, to not bring baked goods to classes. Um, she had a whole list of, of ways in which feminized behaviors could um, produce their own kinds of problems in the classroom and that kind of thing. So this sense that the adaptation that needs to happen is are those marginalized individuals who find themselves in these institutions and not a deeper reflection on the kinds of values and priorities of the institution itself. So to me, it's really troubling and really interesting, interesting, um, that I get told it's a really bad thing, right, to give so much time to students, right, and, and a place of learning. I think that's quite an interesting thing that I get told. Um, so these are all kind of deficit um, ideas about the deficit model of the individual that we might want to pick up on. Um, but I think Kate's going to tell you a little bit about the movie, maybe, now. Okay, so this is just a very short clip from a 1994 film by um, a feminist uh, filmmaking collective called Leeds Animation Workshop. So they're working sort of the back of the integration movement in Leeds um, and around the country. Um, and they produced um, a whole series of sort of oppositional films, including educational films. So films like the one I'm about to show you were often shown in the workplace to educate people around issues like equality and diversity. Um, so through the, through the Glass Ceiling uh, is a 1994 film. It's narrated by Anne Bennett. Um, and I think it touches on um, uh, issues like stereotype threats, about the presumption that individual behaviours are what needs to change, um, and speaks also to the narration of equality and diversity through policy, that if only you have enough policies and spend enough time documenting and working your way through it, that um, this is going to change behaviours. And I think finally it also reflects on who is responsible for equality and diversity. Um, so it's about um, uh, a minute and a half long. And so the princess set off again to seek her fortune. Fantasy land seemed a good place to look for a job. charge needed dragon slayers, but the princess and John were the only applicants. The king sent them off in different directions. When evening came, John stopped for a rest. And so did the princess. heads to the king. Suddenly they heard the sound of trumpets in the town crier. Hear ye, hear ye! John the Dragon Slayer has returned triumphant! The king was impressed. John, he said, you shall henceforth be my chief dragon slayer. 
and Princess Ella should be assistant dragon slayer with special responsibility for baby dragons, emotionally disturbed teenage dragons, and elderly dependent dragons. Wait a minute, Your Majesty. I thought you stood for equal opportunities. But of course I do, the King replied. Here in Fantasyland, we have an equal opportunities policy this thick. Thanks very much for listening, and uh, over to you.